If you can calculate the volume of a cube, but you're stumped by a simple basting stitch, you're not alone. Education around the domestic and creative arts has floundered in recent decades, replaced by academic learning. A whole generation never learned how to. But the DIY culture has caught its second wind in the past few years. And millions of people are launching businesses around creating and selling self-made or handmade products. It's a social turning point that's bringing everyone from mommy bloggers to college students to entrepreneurs back to the making economy. Welcome to the Maker Movement, our topic on Biz 503 today. It's a shift away from mass-produced products and back to handmade, one-of-a-kind items. I'm Rebecca Webb, founder of Portland Radio Project, here with Cindy Tortorisi, business consultant, executive coach, and master connector, and we'll be your hosts this afternoon. We have a stellar cast of guests today to help us learn about the Maker Movement. Andrea Edgecombe, OMSI's Director of Events and Chief Organizer of the Maker Fair. Matt Preston, Communications Director at ADX, that's Art Design Portland, which is a local hub for artists and makers. And Malia Spencer is a staff writer at the Portland Business Journal covering technology, startups, and entrepreneurs, including makers. Welcome, everyone. Malia, you have a, perhaps a broader perspective of this whole movement because of your journalistic approach to it. Can you tell us a little bit about what you've learned through the many articles that you've written about it? Yeah, I first um, became aware of kind of what was going on when I was actually working out in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, which has a rich history of manufacturing. And I was covering manufacturing and technology, and I started just to see this combination of hobbyists and professionals and designers that were all working together and sort of coming up with really cool things in their garages and in these different maker spaces. And, you know, some people started turning it into businesses and making small batch products, and um, it just sort of is kind of taken off from there and there's just a lot of interest in craftsmanship and you know using those skills that maybe not a lot of people have been using. It's really a global movement at this point right? Definitely Um, I think it has a lot to do with um, sort of the the hacker movement and people trying to you know just build new things and that moved from software into actual products and stuff you can hold and hardware and things have gotten cheaper in terms of like um boards and technology that you can order and you can make your own stuff. Right. There are so many outlets on the internet for communication about that. This is a good time, I think, to bring Matt Preston in. He is, uh, as Cindy said, with ADX, which is one of the primary uh, maker spaces and, and hubs. Matt, tell us what's going on at ADX. Yeah, so we're a uh, makerspace located in the heart of the uh, Central East Side Industrial District here in Portland. We're kind of a threefold business, so we act like a gym membership for making. You can come in and pay a monthly membership, and then you get to use all of our fun tools uh, from everything from doing hobbyist work, repairing stuff at your house, to making, f- you know, designing products, doing prototyping, and taking them to production. Uh, we also run a fabrication department that produces products for companies around town, the money of which goes back into the makerspace to keep that open for people. And we teach classes on all those skills. You have a lot of different kinds of people who come in there, right? Absolutely. For example? Uh, For example, we have people that come in who are master engineers, have a master's degree, uh, couldn't get a job in the market, so they had an idea for a product that they've been working on, decided to come in and bring it to reality. So they team up with members uh, and create those products and try to start a business. To retirees who have been doing it their whole lives, uh, who come in and say, I'm tired of making furniture for other people. I'm just going to have fun uh, and make art. So there's kind of a mentoring element that is a thread of what's going on. Absolutely. So we see a lot of cross-generational learning, uh, exchanging of skills and knowledge. Uh, I've seen businesses start just by conversations at the cafe over a cup of coffee. Which is a great way to introduce Andrea Edgecombe from OMSI. Tell us about the Maker Fair. Yeah, uh, so we started the Portland Mini Maker Fair uh, four years ago. So this year was our fourth event. And it's actually an international program, so to speak. So Make Media, they uh, have Make Magazine, and obviously you're very into making. They uh, started it down in uh, the Bay Area, and they've been doing it for 10 years now, and it's kind of just grown from there. So uh, they have three flagships, and then independent organizations in various cities can uh, start their own fair, so to speak. So it's independently organized. So OMSI took that on about four years ago. Uh, We were really interested in innovation and then using design thinking as a way of teaching STEM and science education. And so we thought, well, let's do a fair, kind of see what's out there. And uh, 
it's been really successful and it's been growing uh, year over year. And uh, it's, it's my favorite event that we do. But How uh, many it's makers been... did you have at this particular fair? Because it was just about a month ago, wasn't it? Yeah, it was in mid-September and we had about 140 makers from all over. Um, from all most over? of them are from the Portland Metro, but we also, I mean, we get people coming from Southwest Washington and uh, Southern Oregon and things like that. And haven't you had some makers take up semi-permanent residence there at OMSI? Yeah. So we have, we looked at it, like when we very first started, we looked at, okay, let's see if this is a thing and is Portland really a great place for this? And it turned out the answer is yes, as I think Matt can attest to. Uh, and so we've really been expanding it to try and uh, kind of do that, use that design thinking as a method year round. So we recently renovated what used to be our technology lab. It's actually now our design lab. And so we've been working with local groups. Like we've been working with the Portland 3D printing group and they helped us secure some 3D printers and really looking at that. So it's been really great and helped us to build relationships that we hope are year round with a fair kind of just being this culmination and this celebration that we have every September. Yeah, it's a great fit with OMSI. Just perfect, actually. (laughs) (laughs) We hope so. (laughs) So uh, talking about ADX, Matt, um, I'm really interested in this idea of uh, millennials having a particular inspiration around the makers. Do you know anything about why that would be the case? Sure. Uh, I guess I am one. So I kind of saw it firsthand. I think our generation, it's kind of a twofold problem that arose, which is one that we were kind of told our whole lives that we could do whatever we wanted and, and go out there and, you know, make a living and be successful. And then in our educational programs, sort of in the middle of my K through 12 education, all of the shop classes, all of the hands-on art classes were all pulled out of the school. So I had a shop class in sixth grade Right at the end of it, right when you got the very key skills to start working on the projects, they shut the whole program down. So I think there has been this backlash of our generation saying, you know, A, now I know where all of my products come from. I know that they're not made ethically most of the time. Uh, I know they're mass produced and they break quickly. I want to be able to know where they come from. And I want to know how they're made and how to make them. And since the public education system doesn't want to train me to do that, I'll just buy the tools and do it myself. It really makes sense when you put it that way. And some of us are old enough to remember in elementary and high school where all the girls went off to home economics and all the boys went off to shop class. So I wonder if there was a social imperative that said, let's remove these classes partly for sexist reasons that they may have been perceived as being a bit sexist. Yeah. And I think there was a big push. I mean, there was a big push to say that everybody needed to go to college, right? So that everyone was saying, you have to go to college to get a degree. Can't remember how many people came to our classrooms to say, if you don't get a college degree, you're just going to flip hamburgers. Uh, It was suddenly there was no other option. So when you took that out and people were realizing, well, you know, I went to college and I didn't find what I wanted to do through that. Uh, And I think a lot of people have found that. Also with the market being flooded because everybody did go to college, those jobs aren't there in the corporate environment. And so people are going out and starting their own companies and starting their own careers just in their garage. Malia, can you talk a little bit about, since you have experience from the East Coast to the West Coast, what you saw as a difference from the maker movement from the East Coast to the West Coast, if there is one? I don't think I necessarily saw a difference. Um, I know out there, I would talk a lot to traditional manufacturers who sort of at mass point were lamenting that they were having a really hard time finding employees. Like they had this huge wave of baby boomers retiring and not a workforce coming up behind them to fill back in. And so that was definitely, it was a big topic of conversation all the time. And so that, um, I feel like I saw a little bit more of that out there, but that was also, I was a little bit more engrossed in that than I am out here. Um, But there was definitely this feeling of people wanting to create things and working together to do it, which is very similar to here in Portland. I know out there they, they didn't have ADX, but they had a similar organization and it was really taking off as I was leaving. So it was definitely um, something that people wanted to do. Is there a self-awareness on the part of the makers you've interviewed that they are part of a, a wave, a, some kind of social movement? I think so. Definitely more and more because there's just more attention to it. And you've got these different spaces opening up that have where you can have access to all these big tools and things like that. I mean, one of the famous stories that they were talking, the group when I was in Pittsburgh that was out there, their uh, makerspace is Tech Shop, which is a national chain. And their big claim to fame is that, you know, Square, the the reader for cards, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that initial prototype was made at a tech shop in San Jose or San Francisco. I mean, that's where they went to make it, to be able to show it then to investors and be like, look at this thing we're doing. And that really got them going. So that's sort of a 
big mm -hmm. success story, obviously. And it used to be that makers had Etsy, you know, the, the website online where they could sell handmade things. That's sort of blown up now, right? What's What else is out there? Yeah, there's that. Um, people have their own websites that they're doing. I mean, it's easy enough to set up your own e-commerce site. That um, There's the tools out there to do that. It's kind of this culmination of a lot of different trends all coming together um, that are making it real easy. There's things like here in Portland, we've got Crowd Supply, which is a uh, crowdfunding platform that is geared toward people who are making physical products. And so they kind of help you get your crowdfunding in order and to help you be successful with that. But then they also work with you to have it actually go out and get into the hands of people. And I know there's some folks in town that use them as kind of the e-commerce platform for their items that they're making. So there's just a lot of different tools out there now that can make it easier for everybody. Do you want to talk about some of the things that are being made, for example, at OMSI? Yeah, well, and I don't think they're necessarily all at OMSI per se, but what I was thinking of as Malia was talking is that it's really fascinating to see the broad spectrum of what a maker is and the types of things that they make. Because you had said Etsy, and that's very much, I'll say people think, oh, that's crafting and that, but like that is making. But then you'll have the whole other end of kind of on the manufacturing side, like the square, I mean... That's a really cool story. I actually haven't mm -hmm. heard that one before. And so it's such a broad spectrum, even from tech stuff to like the person who quilts at their house or we've had, I mean, the coolest thing about Maker Fair to me is just so many different people do so many really cool things. So we have like the R2D2 replicas. They build literally like life-size replicas of R2D2s and they just for fun and they bring and in, they, they show it and off. And they sell them. The, yeah, I mean, a couple of them do, but some of them really just did it for fun. Like a guy, one guy, he's a police officer. That's his day job. And he does, he really is into R2-D2s. So, <laughs> <laughs> so you'll have that, but then you will have the people who are like trying to start a small business or already own a small business. And that's kind of their thing. There's a really cool gal. She makes jewelry out of recycled skateboards. So she actually is a skateboarder herself, saw like you know, when your skateboard's kind of done, you just throw it away and that's kind of a waste. And so she takes people's old skateboards and makes jewelry out of them from necklaces to earrings and things like that. So she'll come to Maker Fair and interact with the kids, show them her product. But then, you know, our goal is kind of inspire that next generation. Kind of what they were saying is like, you look that there's not this kind of backfill. And our hope is that people can see themselves as makers and see that there's so many different types of making and it doesn't all have to be technology or crafting or like you can kind of make it what you want to be. So that takes us to the commerce of making. So can you talk a little bit about the business of making? So it sounds like at, at the OMSI Fair, it's more of a display of all the different options. Yes. Is that the focus? Yeah, it is. I mean, there are people who do sell, but the primary focus is for people to kind of show off what they do. Somebody makes something and they bring it and they show it off. Show and tell. Exactly. It's the biggest show and tell on earth, <laughs> is what they say. So, Matt, maybe you can talk about where people actually sell their product. Yeah, so there are, I mean, so Portland is a really unique and interesting place in that there are a ton of local retailers that are willing to support local makers of places like Made Here, Hand Eye Supply. I, there's a ton of them. I'm spacing on their names. Uh, but there's a lot of them around town that every product in their store is made by a local Portland maker. Uh, so a good example is we're doing a, a holiday fair on the 12th of December. We allow 30 vendors to come in and sell. I had 150 people apply that are making products, that are running businesses. They all have full e-commerce sites, all based in Portland. Wow. Yeah, and so I had to weed through and just pick 30, which was kind of killed me to have to just weed it down. Mm -hmm. um, but there's everything from male grooming and healthcare products to handmade straight razors, cast iron products, uh, apparel and fashion is really taking off in Portland now, uh, ceramics. It's really cool to see the spectrum of what's being made and it's being sold everywhere. I want to get details of your December event uh, so that we can tweet them out to people. Um, but I, I heard you allude to the idea of an environmental thread to all of this where your generation is weary of cheaply made mass-produced products that are going to break and have to be replaced, and you know that that isn't good for the planet. So how much of that is part of this story? I would say a lot of it is, uh, you know, and Kelly touched on this on her book a little bit, Kelly Rowley's the owner of ADX, that 
when the internet really took off and all of a sudden we could see where everything was coming from, because before you didn't, you never saw a factory unless you lived in a factory town, but suddenly there are all these reports of fires and collapses and, you know, basically slave labor. And I think people really revolted back from that and said, well, I don't want my products to come from that kind of suffering, even if I have to pay five, ten, twenty dollars more for that item. So I think you see that a lot in the maker movement. I know a lot of the companies that I work with at ADX uh, and then the Portland Maker Movement are sourcing almost all of their resources here in Portland. All of their labor is coming here in Portland. Their machinery is typically American-made if they can make that happen. Uh, so you really see that value system coming about in all of these these maker businesses. Cool. Somebody just uh, hit us up on the talk board asking what kinds of products were being placed in retail stores here. And you, I think you kind of partly answered that, yeah, but have any everything. more come to mind? <laughs> um, you know, and something that doesn't get touched on in the maker movement a lot is uh, processed food. So Portland has a huge processed food uh, center here from the Northwest uh Northwest Food Processing Association is here, uh, but there are things from gourmet cheese puffs to, you know, Olympia Provisions, who's one of the first aged, you know, meat and sausage places here in Portland, guys that are making kale chips to, uh, I mean, chocolate. I mean, there's so many chocolatiers, mm-hmm. uh, wine, liquor, beer, hot sauce. Something about Portland, uh, and you're seeing this more and more in every other city across the country, is like high-quality goods in every market. Is there an association that most makers belong to, or is there such a thing yet? Is there a way that the industry has rallied around each other? They're together? starting to be. So years ago, there was a group in San Francisco called San Francisco Made, uh, and that's been going for a little while to support local fashion designers uh, and makers in San Francisco. And so Kelly, the owner of ADX, also owns Portland Made Collective, which is a collective that she has started to support makers. And so they're doing things like economic studies with PSU to find out how much money is actually being generated in the local economy from these maker businesses so that these companies have uh, a political force behind them when they go to the city and say, hey, look, can you help us with our real estate problem? Can you help us find skilled labor? Uh, We're putting this much money into the economy the original study they did was 100 makers were putting around $260 million into the Portland economy. Wow. And that's just 100. And so Portland Made has over 500 members now. So if you just extrapolate those numbers, that is a lot of money. I know you mentioned Kelly Roy, and she is one of the leaders of the maker movement locally. Uh, we invited her to be with us today. Unfortunately, she is attending to family business out of town. Yeah, but her she, book is coming out. It is out already, yeah. So it you tells can, the story. Yeah, it tells the story of Portland Made. It's got um, a ton of of profiles of Portland makers, and as well as a story from, you know, what she's seen and what we've seen at ADX about how the movement has grown, uh, why it really was fostered here in Portland, and what the environmental factors were that helped that uh, succeed. And so the goal behind that book is to really bring to the forefront of really anybody who's interested what a maker movement looks like, even not just in Portland. Thank you so much. I have learned so much about the maker movement already. And next, we'll be turning to the people who get their hands dirty with the crafts, the makers. The makers themselves will hear from a handful of local makers about the challenges and triumphs of launching businesses around their DIY passions and how Portland's unique creative vibe plays a role in their work after a short break. Welcome back to Biz 503 on PRP. I'm Rebecca Webb, founder of Portland Radio Project, here with Cindy Tortorisi. We're your co-hosts this afternoon. Thank you for joining us. You'll have a chance to offer your questions and comments to the talk on the talk board or tweet us at PDX Radio Project, and your question or comment will show up there. Today we're talking about the maker movement and how folks are turning their DIY passion projects into startups. We are joined in the studio now by a group of dynamic creatives. First of all, Garrett Michael of Makers Woodworks is with us. Glad to have you here. Jen Woodward and Gary Hansen, co-founders of Pulp and Deckel, are joining us in the studio. And Vian Odom of Sami Wine Cellars. Welcome. We're glad you guys are all here. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Yeah, so let's talk about Makers Woodworks. Garrett, what is that? And uh, how how did you get it going? Makers Woodworks is a three-member LLC, and we do custom woodworking and cabinetry locally here in Portland. I'm a co-founder with two other members. Um, I got started many years ago. Yeah. Uh, so 
I've considered myself a maker for a long time now, uh, was, over wh- 20 years. What were you doing before that, before you began doing woodwork? A few different things. I was actually uh, in the Air Force for a term. Mm-hmm. I was in data automation and computer programming stuff. So, And were those feeding your soul? Uh, it was an experience, yeah. I mean, it was a learning experience. It was an education, definitely. And it was long enough ago to be on the front end of what was the big tech boom, you know, in the late 80s, 90s, yeah. um, when it was all incubating here. So, yeah, it was a great experience. I was also fortunate enough growing up. I wish I had, you know, a really interesting story for you where maybe my great-grandfather took me out when I was five and had been taught a woodworker. me how to carve and <laughs> stuff. But uh, I was fortunate enough to um, be in some school programs uh, that offered that type of work and that, you know, those types of creative courses. I'm just wondering if there was a moment between, I mean, what did it have to do with the decline of the bubble bursting in tech or... Was there a time where you, you know, were working in the tech industry and you wanted, but you wanted to be woodworking? On the tail end of, of my service, I got out with the intention of getting involved in the computer industry or something along those lines. But I had uh, fortunately met uh, somebody who was just starting a business or had recently started a business, woodworking business, and uh, it had always interested me. So in the interim... Uh, I got involved with, with that. A very sharp guy uh, who started a business you might be familiar with locally here, the joinery. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. And I was oh, yeah. with them for a long time and learned a lot. Was very fortunate to uh, be hooked up with that on and a, a booming economy. Uh, so that business really took off and um, really fed my creative hunger, you know, and spent a long time there uh, learning, you know, every, everything I could absorb. One of Portland's original makers, really, in a way. Original maker, yes. Mm -hmm. Vianne, tell us about the wine cellar. Well, the name of the company is Sami Wine Cellars, and I I started this business uh, literally in February, which was nine months ago. And it all started about two years ago when I was uh, storing my wine in my sister's wine cellar. And I noticed that her wine cellar was a box, essentially, literally a box, um, poorly constructed, uh, very overpriced, just had a lot of design issues, and it got to a point where I actually needed my own wine cellar to store, and I did a bunch of uh, searches online, and I just didn't like any of the options out there. They were all cookie cutters uh, made overseas, and I figured, you know what, I, I have 10 years of design experience uh, working for an aerospace company, so hmm. I might as well uh, put my skills to work, and uh, n- nine months later, we're uh, post-revenue, um, our products are made, uh, are locally made. Uh, we actually teamed up with Makers Woodworks, and Garrett's really been kind of like the, the driver of this business. Uh, the, the materials are sourced locally, and even the hardware is actually made here. Oh, um, that's awesome. And one of the things that really stands out about our business is that we customize every single unit for our customers. We work around their stringent requirements. Uh, in fact, one of the units that we're doing now for a customer in Georgia, she's got some really, really stringent requirements that we that we were able to meet through uh, lots of discussions and a lot of clever designing. So what do you mean about requirements? Like, I have to have so much space and it has to be this temperature and I have this many bottles of wine or what kind of requirements? Uh, main, mainly space requirements. So she's got this tasting room where her footprint was pretty limited and it had to be within a certain footprint. It couldn't be taller than 80 inches, uh, and she wanted the unit to be one bottle deep. So those types of requirements. But in terms of the temperature and humidity control aspects, that's already been designed in. Essentially, the the design um, are already solidified. And so if a customer comes to us and, and needs certain requirements for their space constraints, we could basically take our original design and modify that to make it work. What's the usual timeline from inception and design to actual um, in, uh, building of the of the cellar? It really depends. Like, there's a current project that we're working on right now. It's a uh, credenza-style wine cellar for a local interior designer. That design took a while because there was a lot of discussions going back and forth. The finish had to be a certain finish. The geometry had to be a certain geometry. And, again, it's really dependent on, on the customer. But in, in terms of the design, it, it could range from two to three weeks. Uh, the manufacturing itself takes about six to eight weeks because it's all handcrafted. Mm-hmm. Well, it's time to introduce Jen Woodward and Gary Hansen now, who are co-founders of Pulp and Deckel. I loved looking through the photos on your website to try to find uh, something pretty for our feature article. You guys make paper. 
We do. Yeah. Tell us about it. Well, the uh, idea started in, what was it, December of 2011? Where uh, you and uh, Jen and a friend of ours, John, who had previously made paper at different places, just really wanted to make uh, paper from blue jeans, which is something that you can do. Uh, they cooked. Did uh, you say make paper from blue jeans? Yes, from blue oh. jeans. Does it um, look like blue jeans? It does. It kind of blends the, the white of the thread and the blue of the denim itself. Um, but they cooked the blue jeans for a couple hours and then tried to uh, blend it up in a household blender that we got at Goodwill. And I don't. Yeah, if you're not familiar with that, it you wasn't can't a Vitamix, do huh? That. No, um, <laughs> but that gave Jen the idea that there really should be like a, a open studio that people who are interested in paper making can come and actually learn the craft. Very cool. How did you happen to learn the craft of paper making yourself? I learned it from my wife. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Jen, your turn. <laughs> yeah, it was sink or swim with him. <laughs> uh, I got it. <laughs> this was the test. Where are you going to keep him? <laughs> yeah. Okay, tell us about how paper making came into your life. Sure. Um, I studied at the museum school in Boston. And uh, while I was there, I got into paper making. I do a lot of drawing and was really fascinated by all the variety of things you could do, making paper from old clothes, from plants. Uh, and there's just an abundance of materials. Yeah, who knew? Yeah. That's, that's amazing. What, yeah. what can you use? But So clothes yeah, it, and pa plants. Paper is a cellulose-based process. So pretty much anything that has cellulose. And you can, of course, recycle paper. That's something we do a lot of, too. So it is a sustainable process. What do you have here? Can you just show sure. us? We'll, we'll yeah. take some photos. Maybe you can ask Rebecca, and we'll get some photos and tweet them out so yeah. people can have a look. And we'll put them in the article. Okay, we'll post great. Um, yeah, I have some uh, cards that we make for McMenamins. Um, nice. And they're beer paper, which means that we take the uh, spent hops from their beer-making process mm. and add it into the recycled paper to make the cards. They don't smell funny, so that's good, right? <laughs> you can kind of scratch them and they start smelling like hops. Really? Uh, a little bit. <laughs> I don't know. They're very cute, though. And you, do you do the designs uh, yourself uh, the, of the, the animals? The artwork for those are, are their um, artwork from the hotels. Very nice. And so cards are yeah. one manifestation. Mm -hmm. And what other kinds of products come from this paper? Sure. Um, we do a lot of custom work for artists. Like right now we're doing an order of firework paper. So it has uh, firework kind of shredded paper embedded in cotton paper. And it's for a book art project. So it'll be a limited edition uh, project that will be a piece of artwork. And it, oh, so it is for a visual. It's yes. not anything yeah. that you're going to light no. up. No, okay. <laughs> it will not be set on fire. Okay, <laughs> good. Okay, anything else? Uh, yeah, we, we also teach classes, um, so we can teach you how to make paper. Um, we do that at our studio, but we also do it at ADX, um, so in their space um, that you guys were talking about earlier. And we also uh, have an artist residency program. So we, we do a lot of different things. We're just trying to get paper out in the world. Is most of your product then customized, much like the, the wine cellar? Yeah, it's, it's pretty custom. We do have a small Etsy shop, and we do a lot of like small craft fairs. We've also been in the OMSI Mini Maker Fair. So we kind of mix it up between the art and the product. What type of products have you commercialized the most? I think the cards are probably one of the more commercial things, but we've also started to make, and I have a sample I can show you, a adult coloring book. Um, oh. That's all the rage right now, if you don't know. Sounds so therapeutic. <laughs> I had no idea. I think I need one. Um, and this is Portland themed. So all the drawings inside I did, and it's made with our paper. Portland Palooza, it's called. The coloring book for adults. I love it. Is there a therapy component to this, or is that just my <laughs> yeah. own problem? No, people, people say it's therapeutic, um, yeah. and that that's part of the appeal. Where do you sell the adult coloring books? <laughs> <laughs> we, we, we sell them through our Etsy shop. I didn't mean to submit that sound. Uh, it's as a coloring book for adults, not an adult coloring book. <laughs> Although Thank you for a, correcting me. I <laughs> there is a startup idea for somebody right there. <laughs> I love it. Well, talk about the business aspect of this. I, I mean, there must be a point in the journey where it goes from being fun to being a, a business endeavor. True? Yeah, I, definitely true. Um, I quit my day job last year, um, and our business is three years old. So there is definitely a transition between this being kind of more of a part-time project. It was a business and registered and everything, but 
I was able to quit my job and do this full time. And it's still a matter of trying to get the word out. And a lot of people will find us and say, oh, I had no idea you were here. And just with no marketing dollars, it can be really challenging. Yeah. Can you guys tell us what your experience has been along those lines? Yeah. Uh, Vian and Garrett, because you do, there is, does have to be a marketing component to having your own business. What did you guys do about that? Uh, I think a marketing is key. Uh, Experience-wise, I mean, the, the advantages we have these days with social media and, and a lot of the networking that we were able to do is really a, a bonus to get out there and the exposure and actually for your work to be seen, you know. And a lot of people are very visual. They, they need to do that. So it's an opportunity for referrals and word of mouth. And one of the aspects of our business that we really – we're riding behind was our love of the craft, uh, as well as getting the opportunity to provide a wider range of services for clients. Uh, everything we do, as Vienne does with the wine sellers, is basically made to order and they're custom. And a lot of what we do is dimensionally driven and you know customer driven. So it's really a chance to interact with with the people out there and and know that your work is being seen by their network of friends as well. So it's really driven exponentially that way. We got started on it and are really fascinated by everything there is to offer locally and a lot of the materials that are, that are available locally and mixed mediums and being able to, as we do woodwork, the complementary aspects of metal with wood and things along those lines. And it's uh, your imagination. No limit. Well, as Garrett was saying about the importance of marketing, I, I think it's it's so, so critical to have a, a huge marketing component in your business. Um, I was fortunate enough to team up with some of, some of, the, some of the best creative and marketing uh, individuals in Portland, and they've done phenomenal work for, uh, for us. Um, in addition to that, I mean, I spend a majority of my time just trying to get the name out there, press releases, uh, social media. And you know, with, with technology these days, it's literally free. I mean, you just have to spend a lot of time and effort in, in, uh, in really promoting your, your products, your, yourself, and really utilizing your resources. And Portland has a huge pool of resources. So if you know how to tap into those resources, you could definitely make it. So you said that you were working with some some of the master marketers of, of Portland. And did they send you on the, the social media path or have you used Look, other methods? They're They've provided some counsel, and they also helped create the brand, the brand. Um, and some marketing material. But it's really it was it was essentially me working long hours, nights, days, weekends, you name it, holidays, and just getting the name out there. Talk about the name. I think there's a story there, Sami. Yes. Yeah, so Sami is actually um, my sister's name, and it's also a wordplay on my sister's name, and also Somalia. Really, she she really kind of gave me the the idea of this business. Again, I was storing wine in her place, and she eventually moved, and I wanted to start a business. And uh, it was if it wasn't for her, or it wasn't for her generosity of uh, of providing her wine cellar for me to store my wine, I'd probably be doing something else. Maybe, maybe back in the aerospace uh, industry. <laughs> I hope she's listening. Um, I'm sure she is. <laughs> She'll catch the podcast. We'll a get her the bit podcast. Later. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. So, Jen, in a moment, we're actually going to be talking about um, what kind of support Portland is able to provide, and uh, Vian alluded to that. But show us a little bit more about your book just before we leave it. Great. What else is in here? Uh, we also have uh, some plant uh, blend papers or just straight-up plant papers. You can use a lot of invasive species. A really good use for getting rid of them. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so that's pretty great. We want to do more with... We've, we taught a class at the bamboo garden um, using the bamboo from the garden to make the paper. So we'd, we'd like to do more uh, community-based projects with people using plants. So if anybody's listening and they want to do that, farms would be cool too. Nice. And what uh, sorts of people come to you for things like classes uh, and to, to really learn the paper-making trade? I think it's usually uh, artists and people interested in the sustainability aspect of it. And some crafters and just creative uh, folks that want to spend maybe an afternoon or evening uh, doing something with their hands and something that they haven't done before. And whereabouts are you guys located? We're in St. John's. We're actually in an incubator program with the C3 initiative. Yep. 
Um, and they're a nonprofit arts organization, and we're inside of their space. Great. So it's not all in inner Southeast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's excellent. Okay, so we've heard from our guests that Portland is this special hub for makers. We want to learn more about some of the ways the city helps artists and craftspeople thrive in the next section, and that's when we come back. Welcome back. I'm Cindy Tortorisi, founder of The Link, co-hosting today with another founder, friend of mine, Rebecca Webb, founder of this fabulous radio project, Portland Radio Project. <laughs> Emphasis on project. We were just talking about how we make it up as we go along. We spoke a few minutes ago with a cast of makers who are part of a growing movement to bring back DYI. Sorry, DIY. <laughs> the case may be. <laughs> or, or your choice. But all of these creators needed workspaces, collaborators, funding, things like that. Now we're turning to look at how Portland is thinking big and bringing makers together through maker spaces. Try that one three times fast. Showcases and collaborations. Here to share their take on the practical side of the maker movement are two business owners supporting artists. Inger McDowell is the owner of Love with Love from Portland and... Matt Preston is back with us, and Malia Spencer is back with us, as is Andrea McDowell from, from OMSI. So welcome, everyone. We're glad you guys are here. And I guess we should really pick on the new girl, right? So let's ask Inger. And by the way, is it with love from Portland or with love from PDX? With love from PDX. With, with love from PDX. Okay, so Inger, what is with love from PDX? So With Love from PDX is um, a curated gift box uh, filled with locally made Portland artisan products. So um, I started the company early this year, and um, I actually had another company prior to this called Teak Box, which was a box subscription company where we sent boxes all over the country um, to subscribers monthly. And it was what? What box? It was called Teak Box. Teak Box. Yeah, okay. Teak Box. And what was in it? Um, all Portland-made products. Okay. So we did candles. Um, we did soaps. We've done. Uh, we did tea towels. We did all kinds of fun stuff. I mean, Portland's a crafty wonderland. So there's. And what are your what What are your current boxes filled with? Um, still Portland-made products. Um, similar stuff: candles, coffee, tea towels, totes. I mean, anything you can think of. It's being made in Portland, and if it can fit in a nine by five by four box, I can get it in. Awesome. Very nice. Yes. Was it a branding thing? You just wanted to change the brand? Well, or actually, are there other differences? No. So Teakbox actually dissolved. Um, just due to creative differences, we decided to dissolve our company. And we were part of a PDC's startup challenge um, under the Portland Development Commission. That's what PDC is. And so we had started the company with just an idea of maybe taking the Birchbox model, which was um, a subscription model out of the state of New York um, that two women had launched out of Harvard. And they had um, decided that they wanted to do something around um, makeup and cosmetics. And so we thought, could we do something similar here in Portland with our makers? Because there's so many of them. So we launched the company and it was pretty successful. Um, but we just had creative differences and decided to do something different. So I loved doing the curation and so continue to do that in this new space, which is my gift box company. So talk about how you pull all of this together. What, that sounds really labor-intensive. Well, it's not necessarily la that labor-intensive. I mean, we have a lot of makers in Portland, and people are really gracious. And so I order products typically by calling makers and, and, you know, up and saying, hey, like I'm curating a holiday gift box, for instance, which I am curating. And it's actually been in, featured in 1859 Magazine, which is great. And so I called makers who make jam, who make candles, um, and just said, you know, I'd love for you to be part of this gift box would you be interested? And most of them um, always say yes. No one usually turns me down, which is kind of nice. And so I just curate the boxes and people either drop stuff off or I pick it up. And it's always nice to kind of go to someone's space where they're curating the products and making it in their homes or a studio or a garage and kind of seeing their process. And where do you pull it all together into the box? In my house, in my little tiny studio. Oh, that's great. Yeah. That's great. Wow. A really great question just came over the talk board. How is the maker movement helping attract business to pour Portland from outside the region. Who wants to take that on? Matt Spencer from ADX. Way to Matt step Preston. up. <laughs> yeah. uh, Sorry, Preston. Uh, well, you know, you can look at it this way. Uh, maybe not so many established companies are moving here for the maker movement. I think a lot are moving here for other reasons, but people are moving to Portland to start small businesses. Uh, so in that sense, the maker movement is bringing people in here and creating an economy of small businesses uh, and creating that business here in the, here in the city. 
And I was really glad uh, that Inger mentioned the Portland Development Commission because we have some structures locally for supporting these kinds of projects. And uh, Deanna Allred is actually here from Albina Community Bank. I, I don't want to put you on the spot unless, unless there's something you want to say, but I know that you support these kinds of makers. And I just wanted you to talk about, and maybe Malia Spencer knows something about this uh, from her reporting at the Portland Business Journal, what is going on in the way of providing a network for this important movement? So this kind of, I think, sort of goes also with the trend of just small businesses in general and tech startups. And there's definitely a lot of resources for people in Portland who are interested in starting a business, kind of if it's a food business, an apparel business, a software business, some sort of like product that you want to make. There's the PDC and their startup challenge that they've been doing for people who want to start businesses. And they specifically focus on startups with diverse founding teams. Um, There's also things like all the different co-working spaces in town where you can go and you can kind of set up and some of them offer education, some of them offer networking. Um, There's just a lot of different places you can go. There's organizations like the Oregon Entrepreneurs Network that has a lot of education and things like that for people. Um, They do a lot of um, meetups and various events. If you go onto the meetup.com website and just search things for Portland, you get tons of different groups that are setting up. And so um, there's just a lot of places for people to go if they want to try and start something. What about funding? Funding is... Every business needs some funding. Right. right. And it's a little bit different depending on what kind of business you are. I mean, there's the, you know, angel investing. If you're going to be something that is going to be like, um, you know, scale quickly and venture backable, you can go into venture funding, things like that. There's also the various groups in town like Albina. And I know they work with a lot of small businesses. There's things like um, Portland Seed Fund. There's just a lot of different options, but it really is specific to the business. Um, It's not kind of one size fits all. Are we seeing that one particular aspect of the makers movement, one industry side of the makers movement more funded than another, perhaps? Well, (laughs) it depends on if you can say when if you bring in tech into the maker movement, which a lot of people do uh, because they are making stuff and it is quality product. So that tends to get the venture capital. So with maker businesses that are producing products, The big problem is that there's a high amount of cost going into it. Uh, There's typically a very low gross profit on the final product. Uh, And the the companies are typically kind of slow to build uh, and to distribute. And a lot of the maker businesses aren't looking to become million-dollar businesses. A lot of them just want to make to their capacity uh, because it's what they love to do. And they're not necessarily looking to start a big company. Or to scale. uh, Or to scale that big. So, But companies like Alpine Opportunity Corps, Mercy Corps Northwest... MISO, the PDC to some degree, uh, there's a lot of funding there that will look at your, your company and say, well, if you're doing good things with it and you've got, you know, you've got these sort of social impact uh, ideals behind it, you can get some really great funding. I meet with a group of people who are part of various organizations that fund small businesses, and there's a huge desire in Portland to get people funding however they can. What's the, what's the scope of the funding from from how much to how much do you think? From 5000 I mean, I think to you see it from, yeah, from $1,000 to... You know, tech might be getting hundred. Yeah, I would expect 000. tech. Yeah, yeah, yeah so yeah, I yeah. think with the maker, I think typically uh, you'll see you know one, five, ten, maybe twenty. I think uh, with ADX, you know, she we were able to source uh, funding from Mercy Corps Northwest and Albina Opportunity Corps. But then the bulk of it was you know Kelly leveraging her house and basically everything she owned into the business. Wow, Kelly Roy, you're talking Kelly about Roy. who is the the founder of ADX and the owner. Yeah, and also of Portland Made. Yeah. And now tell us about her book. Yeah. So Kelly's got a new book that just came out. She wrote a book called Portland Made. It has a ton of biography, biographical studies of people who have started maker businesses, as well as telling the story of, you know, how we've seen the maker movement start in Portland, why it's kind of grown here, what the economic and cultural tenants around the community that have helped fund that that movement. And I think the goal is to really show the country and the world that this movement is a thing and that it's a really powerful, powerful thing. Well, we're, we're constantly asked about it. So this will be a way of answering absolutely some, some of those questions. Inger, um, Matt mentioned different categories of people who are makers ranging from people who, you know, really just sort of wanted a small business and a way to get by versus people who are planning to scale and, you know, go bigger, bigger time. Mm -hmm. So which of those, which category are you in? 
as 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 a personal business, my my yes. business, um, I would say someone who's a small business owner who um, is looking to stay small. I really like the relationships I built with a lot of the artisans I work with, and so you know, my specific niche or segment of people I usually work with are corporations, realtors, anyone that's looking to gift. Um, so any consumers that are looking for a specialty gift item, or um, just busy professionals who don't have time to shop for a present, um, often find my business. So how do they find you? Typically online or through word of mouth. Yeah. I don't do a lot of marketing or advertising just because it's expensive. So usually people um, have bought gifts or, you know, people just tell people, other people about the company. So what's yeah. the average price point of one of your boxes? Um, $55. Yeah. Very, so very four to five much. items typically. And mm-hmm. you can also curate your own gift box on our website. So you can decide the items that you want in your box and we'll ship it to your door. Very nice. Yeah. And I assume you, you, you ship all over the country. and all, We do. Do mm-hmm. you ship all over the world as well? Yeah. Well, not all over the world, but definitely all over the country okay. for sure. Yeah. Right. Good to know. So international presents its own challenges. It does because of different taxes and different kind of like, yeah, laws and right. stuff. Yeah. So you don't want to go there. Um, not yet. Maybe <laughs> at some point. Okay, another question from the talk board. Where does someone start if they have a great idea for their own maker business? Where to start? Well, you can start at ADX. <laughs> um, you know, depending on what, what the product is and what, what you need to get that started. Uh, a lot of people come as ADX members because they've got a napkin drawing of a product. What we say at ADX for the small businesses is that we provide the tooling in the space that is otherwise unaffordable for you to start your business. So, uh, you know, from the $60,000 worth of woodworking tools and another $40,000 worth of metalworking tools, you know, if you're starting a product, you don't want to go buy all that stuff. Uh, So you can come to us. uh, You can just come and take a bunch of classes and learn how to do the skills you need. You can test your product. Uh, you can hire on people in the space that are proficient in that skill to help you with your product. And you can come to us and we'll help you with marketing and connect you to the local sources for capital here in the city. Malia, do you have something? Yeah, I was going to say another add? place that um, is got a lot of resources and things like that would be another plug here for the Oregon Entrepreneurs Network. Because there's uh, a lot of resources there that they can point you to in terms of starting a business. Like maybe not the the stuff like the uh, the tooling and things like that that people need to make the product. But for some of like the help and strategy and things like that and like at least where to go. Um, and they've got a lot of um, events that they hold and classes and resources and stuff like that. Yeah, and also uh, SBDC here in Portland has a lot of really great classes, and Mercy Corps Northwest offers a lot of really great classes, and some of them are free. Uh, I've got a lot of our small business makers who are going to those classes. I also encourage anybody who's starting a small business who has a product idea to go and take some of those business classes to make sure that you're you want to run a business because some people just want to make a product and don't realize what it takes to actually make the business work. What is SBDC? Uh, Small Business Development Development Center. Center. It's at the PCC campus, but they have a couple different locations, right? I think that they do classes. Yeah, usually they're tied to like a university or something like that. Uh, But you can go to sbdc.gov, I believe. Google. There you go. So, Inger, let's bring you back into this because I want to hear what you did. Uh, You had the one other company, which was Teak Boxes, Uh right? And then there were differences, so that dissolved. And then what did you do from there? Well, I decided to pick up and start with Love from PDX. So, I mean, I had a background and kind of new makers and decided that instead of pivoting to something different, that I would just stay in what I know. Um, and so I decided to just relaunch under a new brand and a new name and um, continue curating gift boxes. It made sense because I already had to all those relationships. And so it just, yeah, I just kind of settled in and continued to kind of chip away and talk. And I'm rebranding and talking to people about the new company. And even though sometimes people get a little confused, they're like, what happened to Teakbox? It's it's nice and people are still supportive of the new brand. So, Andrea, jump in. Yeah, I was just going to say, I think the interesting part, especially about Inger's story, and we talk a lot about a success, but there's also, I think, a really critical part of making and also even the maker movement is failure. And not that failure has to be a dead end, but failure can be a start to a new beginning and hopefully eventual success. And I think that's critical from, you know, especially the design thinking and things like that, but also just from a very logistical, realistic thing is like just because something doesn't succeed the first time doesn't mean it won't next time. Or I was even thinking when Malia was talking like crowd supply, like I'd be very curious if 
when somebody puts their idea out there, what if nobody funds it, then it doesn't get funded. Does that mean, you know, do they try again or how, you know, how is that playing into the picture? And I don't necessarily know the answer to that. It's just kind of an interesting point there. But I love that you had such a positive take on it. It's not the end, you know, and it could, you could learn a lot lot of lessons and begin again. Exactly. Deanna Allred from Albina Community Bank is with us now, and I know you provide a lot of support for these small startups. We do, and it's an interesting concept listening to all the successes and even some of the restarts. Kind of our concept at Albina is it's never a no, it's not yet. And so that support is really important. So when you're starting a small business, you really need to think about what support, you need a support team. And so is it a banker? Is it an attorney? Is it an insurance? Is it a a realtor? What a CPA? All of that is your support team um, to make sure that you are a success. Makers are amazing group of people. Um, and most people don't think of bankers as being very entrepreneurial. Um, you know, so we um, part of our creativity, we are, inspiration comes from you. So being able to work and make sure that a company is sustainable or heading in the right direction, or if you need that, whether it's a marketing or you need that connection, that's what we're here for. So encouraging uh, makers to continue in the Portland uh, area is really critical for, for our, our story. Going back to what Matt was saying about business and being in the business of business, what do you expect when a maker comes to you when you're at the stage of not, not yet? Not yet. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'd like to hear their story. Um, we'd like to see that there's a business plan, and that's where I think the Small Business Development Center out of PCC is really critical. One of the partnerships we have with them is, if they're not there, is to, is to basically refer them to SBDC to help them put their plan together. Because having been a small business owner myself at one time, if I had my circle of influence uh, around me, perhaps the outcome would have been different. It certainly would have been um, an easier chore to take on than thinking I had to do it all myself. Um, And again, makers are creative and they're doing their business. And uh, we want to help them, again, sustain and maintain that business. Okay. Well, I think we've had a really great discussion about the maker movement. Anything pop to mind that you want to quickly interject before we close it up? All right. I want to thank all the guests for being here today. And we especially want to thank our tech team, Luke Neal, Tamim Almuza, Greg Moore, and Chris Arneson for helping us go out over the airways today, along with producer Nishtasia Voizen. Thank you so much. Great and they are a great team. Thanks for joining us for Biz 503 on PRP. And have a great weekend. See you next time.